Well, good morning, church. How is everybody today? Good to see you. Doing well? Our God is worthy of our praise, and today's one of those days where you guys are worshiping through music so well, I, I, we could just keep doing that. That was just such a, a wonderful time of worship, but we don't stop as we open God's Word. We continue to worship Him as He reveals Himself to us through His Word and shows us and convicts us of how we should respond. And so if you would, open up your copy of God's Word, turn it on however you brought it with you this morning, and join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, if you didn't bring one with you, there are some in the pew back there in front of you. And we are going to be in the back section, the New Testament, on page 136 in that pew Bible. We uh, welcome those that are joining us online. Hope you will also open up your Bibles and join us today in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we prepare to observe the Lord's Supper together this morning. Back in July, we celebrated the 50th anniversary of the lunar landings. I'm a bit of a history nut, and so every documentary that was on, every TV show, every movie that was on back there, I watched them all. My, I, I just geeked out on it all month long. I just enjoyed it. My family makes fun of me all the time, but I just, I enjoy that kind of thing. And 50 years ago, man set foot on the moon. And on that first landing, Neil Armstrong, we know, was the first man to put his foot on the moon, but the one that went along with him was a man by the name of Buzz Aldrin. And Buzz had asked for permission from Mission Control for a special moment once he got onto the lunar surface. Just a quiet moment where he just asked for silence over the radio, and in his pressurized suit was a little compartment, and he pulled open that compartment, and within it was a little wafer and a small cup. And there on the surface of the moon, Buzz Aldrin observed the Lord's Supper. Just in a pri private moment of reflection. And while I think that was a great act of reverence, I do not believe that God intends for us to observe the Lord's Supper in isolation. I'm not demeaning what Mr. Aldrin did there. I'm just saying that I believe that the Lord's Supper is intended to be done in and through the body of Christ. It is a statement that we make individually and corporately of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done on our behalf. Over the last two weeks, we've been looking at a sermon series called Identity, where we are identifying ourselves with Christ. And we do that in many different ways, but as a church, we do that in two ordinances that God has given to the church. We do that through baptism, believer's baptism, which we observed and talked about last week, and we do that through the Lord's Supper this morning. The Lord's Supper is important to God. He mentions it in his word four times in the Gospels, five times in the book of Acts, and two times in the letters. It is something of importance to him, and it is something of importance that he commanded the church to do, and therefore it should be something that is important to us as well. And so this morning I want us to focus on this concept. What is the Lord's Supper and who should observe it? Last week we talked about believer's baptism, and I was asked on multiple occasions at the conclusion of last week's service and during the week why I had devoted an entire sermon to talking about baptism to a Baptist church. Why would I spend an entire time talking about something that everybody already knew about? And my response to that was that we can't make the assumption that everybody understands what baptism is 
what it means, and they, we certainly can't make the assumption that everybody understands how we as a church approach baptism. One of the wonderful blessings that we have as a church is a diverse congregation. And by diverse, I mean we have people coming from all different backgrounds. When we have our first steps course, the next one being next Sunday night, if you're interested, we'd love for you to come and learn about the church. If you're interested in connecting with us in membership, we'd love for you to come and be a part of that next Sunday night at five. But as we have each one of these uh, classes that go together, we are finding and discovering more and more that the people that come to First Baptist Church are coming from a variety of spiritual backgrounds. Not all of them are coming from a Southern Baptist background. Many of them are coming from a Catholic background or from a Presbyterian background. We are even having many come that don't have any spiritual background whatsoever. And for that, I praise God. But as a result of that, we cannot make the assumption that everybody understands what baptism is, nor can we make the assumption that everybody understands what this Lord's Supper is or represents. And so it is vital, it is critical for us to spend time discussing as a church what we believe about baptism in the Lord's Supper. I introduced to you last week that there's a difference between a sacrament and an ordinance. A sacrament is something that some denominations practice that is something that must be done in order for salvation to be conferred. In other words, for you to be saved, you must be baptized. In order for you to say, be saved, you must eat the bread and drink the juice of the Lord's Supper in order to be saved. That is a sacrament. You must do it to be saved. We believe that God has given us two ordinances and an ordinance is different from a, a sacrament. An ordinance is not something that you do in order to be saved. It's something you do as a result of being saved. It is a picture of that salvation. Baptism is a picture of Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection. And it is a picture of our spiritual death, our spiritual resurrection to new life, and our hope for Christ to come for our physical resurrection at one point. So we have a picture of that. And now as we come to the Lord's Supper table today, we also have a picture of Christ's death, his body and his blood, sacrificed on our behalf, taking our sin away. Last week, we talked about the fact that the world is suffering through an identity crisis, that people don't know who they are, that they want to move away from a gender binary to this spectrum of gender names and pronouns, and we don't want to be he and she anymore. We just want to be they, and that doesn't make any sense logically, but this is where our world is. And I said that we're not doing this to make a judgment on anybody. We're just making an observation that the world is confused over who they are. But unfortunately, many within the church are confused over who they are as well. Unfortunately, those who claim the name of Christ aren't always identifying themselves as Christ followers as we should. And we looked at that little church in Antioch, that ancient city where they were first known, the followers of Christ were first known as Christians because the people saw those people are different. Those people are distinct. They claim to be Christ followers, they claim to follow Jesus Christ, and they certainly look like it, so we're going to call them Christians. It was a word of derision to begin with, but it was a word that recognized they are distinct, they are different, they are unique. And God has called upon us to be distinct, different, unique. 
And my challenge question last week was this, if you can talk about yourself without talking about Jesus Christ, you might have an identity crisis as a Christian. Because our identity as Christ followers is tied to him. We ought not be able to talk about ourselves without talking about him. And so how do we identify ourselves with Christ? We do so with our words. We do so with our actions. We do so with our good works so that people will see them and glorify our Father who is in heaven. But God has given two specific acts to the church, two ordinances to the church, so that we would be identified with Christ. The first is believer's baptism. That is someone stepping forward, making public profession of faith, saying, I believe that I am a sinner separated from my holy God, and God has done everything necessary to make me right with him through Jesus Christ. I want to be identified with Christ. It is a public, individual proclamation. But it is also, we saw last week, a church proclamation where the church comes alongside the one making that profession and saying, we believe that best we can tell this person trusts in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation and they have been redeemed. We have seen redemption in their life. It is an identification. We talked about that last week. This week, however, we talk about the Lord's Supper. This also is a time where we publicly identify ourselves with Christ. We publicly identify that we believe that Jesus sacrificed himself on our behalf. His body took our place. His blood took our sin away, and we identify with him publicly, individually and corporately, as we come to this table together. And so just briefly this morning, as we prepare ourselves to go to this table, I want us to turn to this chapter in Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, which is the most concise and comprehensive handling of the subject of the Lord's Supper that we have in the New Testament. And so if you would, as we read together from God's Word, would you stand with me if you're physically able in honor of God's Word? We're going to begin in verse 23 of chapter 11. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to your table this morning, as we open your word today, Father, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds. Let your Holy Spirit speak to us through your word of truth. Let us understand the Lord's Supper perhaps more clearly than we ever have before, understanding the meaning of it and who is supposed to participate in it. 
And Father, let it be a true statement of our faith and of our proclamation of our love for you as we wait for you to return. Father, thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated this morning. So just briefly this morning, two questions. What is the Lord's Supper, and who should participate in it? I was asked by a couple families that have children over in our children's worship if it would be appropriate for them to come over and observe the Lord's Supper today, and my response was wholeheartedly yes. It's an awesome opportunity for us as families, as us as parents, as us as a church to train up our children to understand what this is and what it means and who should participate in it. So those of you that brought your children over, I thank you for doing that. I hope that they learn today and I thank you for having dialogue with your children. Some of us don't come from a Baptist background. Some of you are wondering, what in the world are you talking about when you talk about a cracker and juice and this Lord's Supper thing? What is that? I don't know. I'm, I'm just, I've not experienced this before, so thank you for being here so we can talk about this. What exactly is the Lord's Supper? Verse 23, Jesus says that he is passing along a command that Jesus gave to his disciples. He says, on the night on which Jesus was betrayed, the night in which he was carried off, the day before his crucifixion, Jesus gathered his disciples together for the Passover meal, and he instructed them, he gave them a command, an expectation of what they should do when he was gone. And so the Lord's Supper for us is not optional, it is an expectation. It is something that a genuine follower of Christ will do, not because we need to be saved, but as a result of being saved, we will want to be obedient to what God has commanded us to do. And Jesus says, this is what you are to do. And the Lord's Supper is simply a memorial. It is in memoriam of what Christ has done. It is a reminder to us of what Christ has done. It is good to be reminded of the gospel on a regular basis. It is a good thing to preach and teach the gospel to yourself on a daily basis, to remind ourselves of how holy and awesome and wonderful God is and how sinful we are, and yet Christ loves us and died in our place. It is good to rehearse the gospel in our minds over and over again, but it is good to come to this table to do so. And so it is a memorial. On that night, Jesus gathered his disciples for the traditional Passover meal a Passover meal that the Jewish nation had been celebrating for centuries, dating all the way back to their time in Egypt when they were enslaved. As a matter of fact, the Passover meal was designed to remind them of that time when they were enslaved, and God sent a deliverer to bring them out. The entire Passover meal is to remind them, you were once in slavery, and God set you free. And the result of that, the cost of that, the price of that was a lamb that had to be sacrificed on your behalf. Each element of the meal represented something special. Within that meal, they would have more than just a cracker and juice. It would be a full-blown meal. As part of that meal, they would have bitter herbs. And those bitter herbs were to represent the bitterness of slavery. It was to remind them of the 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 centuries that they spent enslaved their Egyptian owners, doing only what they were commanded to do, not having freedom on their own, and it was reminding them of the bitterness of that slavery. 
because you never want to forget what you've been freed from. And so they had bitter herbs, but they would take those bitter herbs and they would dip them into salt water. And the salt water represented the tears that were shed during those years of slavery. So they would dip the bitter herbs into the salt water and they would taste that salt water and it would remind them of the tears that were shed. They also had bread that did not have leaven in it, did not have yeast in it, that did not rise. It was just flat bread and it was flat bread because it was made in haste. Because once Pharaoh said, get out, they were ready to go and they fled. And so they ate these pieces of unleavened bread to remind them of the haste in which they left their slavery. They would also share cups of wine together. And each one of those cups represented a promise that God had made to the nation of Israel. And they would hold that cup up and they would remember the promise that God made. I will redeem you. I will restore you. And then they would pass the cup around and drink it. The center of the meal was a, a lamb a lamb that they would have taken into their home about a week earlier. It had to be an unblemished lamb, a, a perfect lamb, a, one that would be eligible for sacrifice. They would take that lamb in, and it would become part of their family. And then on the day of preparation, they would take it to the temple. And the lamb would be sacrificed. Its neck would be slit. Its blood would pour out. The priest would catch the blood. They would take it over to the altar, and they would spread the blood on the altar, the high priest would take blood and go into the Holy of Holies and spread blood over the mercy seat, over the Ark of the Covenant to carry away the sins of the world. Prior to having that animal's throat slit, they would lay their hands on that animal, representing their sin being imputed onto that animal because the animal was taking their place. And Jesus said, I want you to observe the Passover meal, because each one of these elements represents something about the deliverance of you from slavery into freedom. But now I want to take two of those elements, and I want you to understand they represent the same thing, freedom from slavery into freedom, but now they represent freedom from slavery of sin into freedom, of into freedom with me, from death into life. And he said, do this in remembrance, and he took a piece of bread and he said, this bread now represents my body. Just as the lamb took your place, my body takes your place. This cup now represents my blood. Because just as the blood of the lamb was poured out over the altar, my blood is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. We believe that this is a symbolic act. Jesus' death and sacrifice was not symbolic in any way. His death his sacrifice was very physical. It was very real. But this is to symbolize that. There are some who would believe that as they partake in the Lord's Supper, that the elements literally become the body and blood of Christ. That at some point during the ceremony, the, the cracker or the wafer literally becomes the body of Christ and that the juice or the wine literally becomes the blood of Christ. They believe this because as you eat the body of Christ and as you drink the blood of Christ, that is how the salvation is conferred upon you. If you're new to this, relax. We don't believe that. We believe that this is symbolic. Jesus is saying, do this and remember my sacrifice. 
Drink this cup and remember my blood which was shed for you. Eat this wafer and as you do so, remember that my body took your place upon the cross. Verse 24, this is my body. You may remember that when Jesus first came on the scene, a man by the name of John, ba John the Baptist turned and pointed to him and said, behold, what did he call him? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here is that perfect Lamb of God who is going to take your sin away. You may remember the story of a man by the name of Abraham who had a son by the name of Isaac. And he was taking him up on a mountain to sacrifice him. And his son Isaac, who was helping to carry this, the wood for the fire, turned to his father and says, Father, I see the fire. I see the wood for the fire. I don't see the sacrificial animal. What are we going to do? And you remember what Abraham said? God himself will provide the sacrifice. If you read Isaiah chapter 53, we read of the suffering servant. We read of the one who takes our place on a cross. If you read Psalm 22, you read the psalm of the cross. If you get to the book of Revelation, there's weeping and mourning in heaven because God has a book in his hand and no one is worthy to take that book from his hand. And then one of the elders says, stop weep, weeping for look, behold the lamb standing as if slain who is worthy to come and take the book out of God's hand. Jesus Christ is the lamb. His body was sacrificed for us. Verse 25, he said, this cup is my blood. It's the blood of the new covenant. Our God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He makes promises and he keeps promises, and every one of those promises, every one of those covenants is sealed with blood. You can go all the way back to the book of Genesis. As Adam and Eve sinned, and they recognized that they had no clothing on, and they tried to cover themselves, and God says, that's not adequate, and he had to sacrifice an animal in order to provide a covering for them. You continue on in the Old Testament, and of course, we have the sacrificial system, animals sacrificed, turtle doves, rams, lambs, all taking the place of someone else. You have the Day of Atonement where the high priest would go into that place where God resided and he would smear blood everywhere to take away the sin of the world, to cover over the sin of the nation. And all of that points to Jesus Christ. All of it is a picture of what Christ has done for us. Hebrews chapter 9 says, we're not saved by the blood of goats or of calves, but by the very blood of the spotless lamb of God. The Bible tells, says without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your sins, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Romans chapter 5 verse 9 says you are justified by his blood. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 13, we have been brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1 verse 20, he has made peace by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
What a beautiful picture that God is painting for us. My iniquity imputed on a spotless son of God and his righteousness imputed onto me. He took my sin, he took your sin, and he put it on the shoulders of his perfect son. And when we trust in that substitutionary sacrifice, he takes Jesus' righteousness and he places it on us. So that when God sees us, he no longer sees us as we're in Adam in our sin. He sees us as if we're in Christ. When he sees you, he sees Christ. What a beautiful picture is painted with the Lord's Supper. And it reminds us of his great actions upon our behalf. It reminds us that we then need to respond in obedience and remembrance and gratitude and devotion. So what is it? It is a picture of what Christ has done for us. The second question then is, who should participate in it? Who should participate in this? Who should observe this meal together, this Lord's Supper together? Jesus commanded this to his disciples. He gave this to those who had trusted in him. He gave this to those who had placed their faith in him. And so if you have not yet trusted in Christ, if you have not yet placed your faith in him, to take away your sin, then this observance is not for you. It might be for you in the sense that you can learn from it, but it is not for you in the sense that you can do this because you haven't remembered what he has done for you. This is to remember. It is a picture of what he has done for you. And if you haven't claimed that promise, then this doesn't paint a picture. This is a time for those who have trusted in Christ where we look back and remember what he's done for us and we look forward to what he will one day do again. I will add this. You do not have to be a member of this particular church to be a, take part in this Lord's Supper. You do not have to be a member of First Baptist Church, but you do need to be a member of the body of Christ. You do need to have placed your faith in Christ. If so, you are welcome here. You say, how do I know if I've done that or not? How do I know for sure if I am a member of the body of Christ? How do I know for sure if I am a Christ follower or not? Well, have you admitted your sin and need for a Savior? Have you trusted in Christ alone as the one who will make you right with God? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in him? You say, I don't even know how to know that. How do I know that? How do I know if I've done those things? Well, let me ask you this. What's your attitude towards sin in your life? Are you okay with sin in your life? Are you broken over sin in your life? 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 says, If we say we have no sin, then we're deceiving ourselves. What's your attitude towards obedience? When God tells you to do something, how does your soul, how does your life respond to it? 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 says, By this we know that we love him if we what? Obey him. What's your attitude towards growing in your faith? What's your attitude towards love? 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 says, Because he loved us, we ought to love one another. What's your attitude towards the truth? When you're confronted by the truth of God's word, how does your heart respond to that? Do you want to run from it or do you want to change because of it? 
All of these are signs that you have trusted in Christ for your salvation. And so as we come to this table, even now, let me challenge us to look backward in appreciation. If you are a Christ follower, if you have trusted in Christ for your salvation, then the next few moments ought to be time where we spent reflecting on what Christ has done for us, looking back and remembering the cost to make you right with God, the cost to take your sin away. It's a looking back in appreciation. We ought to love to tell this story. We ought to love to be reminded of what Christ did for us. But not only is it a looking back in appreciation, it's also a looking inward in evaluation. Verse 27 says that no one should take it in an unworthy manner. The only way we're made right with God is by grace through faith. It's not works. It's just simply what Christ has done in us trusting in his goodness and his graciousness. If you come to this table and you think, I can make myself right with God by eating this cracker or drinking this juice, then you're doing it in an unworthy manner. The only worthy way we get to this table, the only table I'm worthy to get anywhere near this table isn't because I'm good or I'm religious or even I'm genuine. The only thing that makes me right and worthy to come to this table is Jesus Christ. And if you are a Christ follower, then you are welcome here. But it needs to be a time where we look inward. And we say, have I trusted in Christ alone for my salvation? Verse 28 tells us we ought to examine ourselves. Someone ought to examine ourselves. Even those of us who are Christ followers, before we come to this table, there ought to be a time when we inspect our lives, when we look in our lives and say, God, is there anything in my life that is not a good reflection of you? Is there anything in my life impeding my walk with you? Is there anything in my life impeding my testimony for you? And if there is, I need to deal with that with you, confess that with you, acknowledge that before you, before I come to this table and remember what it costs to do away with what I still hold on to. The time of examination. It's also a time of looking outward in relation. Matthew chapter 5 verse 23 says, if you're at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, then leave your offering at the altar, go deal with your brother, and then come back to the altar. I think we can make application of that here in the Lord's Supper. If while we're reflecting on our walk with God, if God reminds us, hey, I've offended a brother, I've offended a sister, I have somebody that I have hurt, I need to go deal with that. I need to go ask their forgiveness. I need to go deal with that relationship before I come here. It's a time to just look outward and go, okay, am I right with people? Have I hurt anyone that I need to go and ask their forgiveness from? And finally, it is a look forward in anticipation. Verse 26 says, as often as you do this, you proclaim his death until when he comes again. Because the Lord's Supper isn't just a celebration of Jesus' death, it is a celebration of his life, his resurrection, and his coming again soon. And every time we get together, we are looking forward to the day when he comes back because he has not forsaken us, he will come for us. So, I'm going to ask our worship team, Darren, if they would come back up. And before we go to the table, I just want us to spend about five minutes just worshiping God together and in preparing our hearts to go to this table.
And so in preparing, I need us to look backward in appreciation. God, thank you for what you've done to make me right with you. I need to look inward in evaluation. God, is there anything in my life that is not reflective of you that I need to get rid of? I need to look outward in relation and go, is there, is there somebody that I need to go ask forgiveness for? Is there somebody that I've wronged? And then we need to look forward in anticipation for his return. And so we're going to stand in a moment. We're going to sing. And I want to encourage you. Praise God. Man, just praise God for being your Savior. You can do that by standing and singing. You can do that by raising your hand in worship. You can come and, and praise God by, by praying at this altar. There might be somebody here that says, man, I've never publicly proclaimed Christ as my Savior. I've never accepted the gift that he has for me. And when we do this, when we stand and sing, now would be the absolute perfect time for you to come take my hand and say, Pastor, I don't think I've ever done what you talked about. I don't think I've ever trusted in him personally and publicly. I want to do that today. And finally, we just need to prepare our hearts. So let's pray together and then we'll stand and we'll sing together. If God leads you to stand and raise your hands, do that. If God leads you to come and pray at this altar, come and do that. If you need someone to pray with or talk to, do that. But let's just make this a time of genuine preparation. Father, be blessed, we pray through our lives, through our worship. Lord, prepare our hearts as we go to this table in remembrance of what you've done for us because you, Father, are worthy of our worship. Thank you for Jesus, our perfect sacrifice, the once for all, all-sufficient sacrifice that takes away our sin. Lord, you're worthy of our worship and our lives, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's sing together. You worship together. Do business with God over the next few minutes. Don't worry about the people around you. Just focus on you and God. Who else commands all the hosts of heaven? Who else can make every king bow down? Just see.